Welcome to Trinity Presbyterian Church Owasso Sermon Podcast. Grace changes everything. The first step toward renewal is reprioritizing worship in his presence. Imagine the journey if you were a pregnant woman four months on the trail, maybe even giving birth on the way from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Old men who were 80 years old and older making the trek back. Young boys and girls coming with their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents back to the city that they had heard about. They had grown up in Babylon. That was their home. They had never known anything different. But when the king, when Cyrus offered to those Jews who wanted to return the ability to do so with a grant to restore the temple. They gathered all of the items that were taken out of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar 70 years prior, and they loaded them up on donkeys and camels and other animals, and they hauled them 1,000 miles, 42,360 And when they got there, I wonder how they found a place to live. Maybe they looked up family members, perhaps, who had stayed there, tried to find old uncles and aunts that they had heard about who might still live there. Maybe they they tried to find a place where they were once part of the family. We don't know, but it says in the seventh month. The seventh month here doesn't mean that it took them seven months to find a place to stay. It means that they dispersed into the towns of their ancestors, And the Levites were called together to Jerusalem, especially to be able to give attention to the altar of the Lord. In the seventh month, when they arrived, was Tishri. That's September to October, our time, in the Jewish calendar. That is the month of worship. They began with the Feast of Trumpets, which is the new year for ancient Israel. And what's astounding to me is that you see the priorities of these people, now that they're back in the land, they had two main priorities you see in chapter 3. They had the altar and they had the temple. They were commanded to go and rebuild the temple. But notice what they gave their attention to first. The first thing they gave their attention to was this 30 foot by 30 foot by 40 foot altar. That wasn't part of the gig. But it said they set their heart on remaking the altar. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. And then arose Jeshua, the son of Josedak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar to the God of Israel. Why? Because what was an altar in the ancient Near East? Remember the story of the garden in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve fell and Cain and Abel were their sons. And do you remember Cain built an altar? An altar was a symbol of reconnecting heaven and earth, which had been lost in the garden. And now out of the garden, without connection to God, fallen in sin, the human heart longs to reconnect. And Cain, it says, built an altar. It's implied he built an altar. So also did Noah. He built an altar. So also did Abraham. He built an altar. In fact, 60 times in the book of Exodus alone, 
altars were built. 13 times in the first chapter of Leviticus, altars were built. 400 times in the Old Testament, it said, and they built an altar to the Lord. What was an altar? An altar was a table that was a bridge between heaven and earth. An altar is a bridge between heaven and earth. As they offered sacrifices, the smoke and the aroma and the smell literally went up to the heavens, didn't it? And it formed a kind of bridge by which the human heart longed to reconnect with the divine. I don't know what kind of altars you build, but I build a lot. I build altars because last week I told them how um, I was just kind of in a bad mood because the University of Texas won and A&M lost. And I sat there and I thought about, what did I do on that Saturday? I sat there and I worshiped at the altar of my Aggies. Mm. And then I thought about every time I'm tempted to take a second glance. Every time one of you men looks at pornography, you think your wife wants to know about it. Every time you check your Instagram feed to make sure people are liking it. We worship at the altars all the time. And perhaps the greatest altars that we worship are the gods of Hestia, the god of hearth and home, and the god of Aphrodite, the god of love and of the body and of sexual pleasure. It is easy to be consumers in our modern America. It's easy to come to church and judge the church service based upon the quality of music or the sermon and forget that you are the church regardless of how bad the music is or how hard the sermon is to listen to. But in ancient Israel, the altars that they built were unique. These 400 times, there's a pattern that you see. They were unique as to their object. They were unique as to their motive. And they were unique as to the timing with which they offered sacrifices on these altars. First, the object. The object of the worship in these altars was the God of Israel who had revealed himself through a burning bush that would not be consumed in Exodus chapter 3. And Moses stood there on holy ground and said, Who are you, Lord? Who shall I tell them has sent me? And the Lord said through the burning bush that would not burn up, You tell them I am who I am. That I am the source of all reality. That the true, the beautiful, and the good that you are so ardently seeking is found in me. And because God revealed himself to us, because we are cut off, kicked out of the garden, unable to enter back in, God has invited Israel to offer worship to the one true God, and that is who they offered their worship to. Unique among all the gods of the world, they offered it to the one true God. Do you? Not only their object, but also their motive. You'll notice that in most of the pagan altars that are built in the Old Testament, they are built to gods in order for the God to relent, to change his mood, to be like a morning cup of coffee. Maybe he'll brighten up after we offer this sacrifice to him. But for ancient Israel, the motive was not fear. It was gratitude in response to what God had done. 
You offer your altar not in fear that the Lord will somehow judge the quality of your offer of worship and thereby save you, but you offer it in response to the fact that he has already revealed himself to you. And he in Christ, for those of us who live today, he has already done everything necessary that all these altars just pointed to. They were unique as to their object. They were unique as to their motive. And thirdly, they were unique as to their timing. Notice that it's after they made the trip that they set up the altar. It's not before. Moses, Abraham, Joshua, Jacob, they consistently set up altars after God had acted. And so the timing was unique in Israel. The timing was not before an event. Like we pray sometimes for, you know, in the car before we go on a long journey, Lord, protect us, keep us safe in the car. But it was after you got there, after the journey, then they would set up an altar and say, praise you for your faithfulness. You have fulfilled your covenant promises to us. Jeremiah prophesied long before this that after 70 years, Nebuchadnezzar would be defeated and they, they would return to their land. You can go read it in Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 25. And here they are. They're rejoicing that God is faithful to his promises. Not one of them has failed. And so they worship the object, the one true God, with a motive that is full of gratitude and joy, thankfulness for what he's done for them. And the timing is in response to how he has acted. For no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no one has perceived, Isaiah says, a God like ours who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Some commentators say that as many as 219 offerings would have been sacrificed this first month when they were back in the land. Because the Feast of Trumpets, the first day of the seventh month, Tishri the first would have been the very first day of the new year. Day 10 would have been Yom Kippur. And it's about this time of year, between September and October, when they would have returned back to the land. Beginning the 15th to the 22nd, that would have been the Feast of Tabernacles, when they set up their tabernacles and their booths to remember their forefathers who wandered in the wilderness, and yet God still provided for them all of those years. And here, more than 200 sacrifices would have been made, and they made an altar. The altar was made out of natural cut stone. I mean, natural stone. It couldn't be cut stone, according to Leviticus. It had a ramp in order for them to get the sacrifices to the place where they would burn them to offer the pleasing aroma to the Lord. The first thing they did was they reprioritized worship even before they got to work. They said, we're going to worship. And isn't that a good question and calling for each of us? That even though we have a late Saturday night, even though we have had a hard week, you know what we need the most? We need to come and rest and worship with God's people. And I just want to give you permission here that you don't have to smile when you're here. I mean, I need one or two of you to smile. But it's okay to not, like, put on the happy face. You're here to worship. You're not here to pretend. There was somebody who worshiped with us a couple of weeks ago, and they sat in the back row, and I preached the whole sermon, and I just saw them weeping in the back row. They just needed to come and weep, and they sat in the back because they didn't want to make a scene. They just came here to rest in his presence after a really hard month, and they just cried. And that's okay. First, the altar. It is a bridge between heaven 
and earth. But second, the temple. The temple. And when you read about the temple being rebuilt, I know it just kind of falls on deaf ears. Okay, oh, the temple, what a nice, it must have been a nice building. I don't think you know the shock of what the temple really meant to ancient Israel. And so I'm going to tell you and maybe shock you back into recognizing how important it was. Do you remember the very beginning? It all goes back to the beginning of the Bible. In your chart, if you're looking on the back, go all the way back to creation. It's the first little sliver that you see all the way back. In the garden, Adam and Eve were in a temple. The garden was a temple because the temple is the place where God's presence dwells. The temple is the place where God's presence dwells. In the Garden of Eden, God's presence dwelt there in harmony, perfect flourishing, shalom, complete harmony and peace. Oh, don't we long for that again. And because God's presence was there, there was no death or decay or imperfection. Evil could not exist. Absolute love, joy, and bliss in the garden. And it was a sanctuary. But when human beings decided to build their lives on other things besides God, And make God the center of their life and let other things give their life meaning and significance. We were shut out of the sanctuary. We left the sanctuary because we were shut out of the garden. And and when Adam and Eve left, they turned around and do you remember what they saw? They saw a flaming sword going back and forth, back and forth, guarding the way back into the garden. Why? It was as if God were to say, nothing can get back into that garden unless you bleed, unless you are cut, unless you go under the sword. And so as we build for ourselves other things, we, we trample on the world, shut out of the garden. We not only experience injustice, but we perpetrate injustice ourselves. And, and that means that it's, it's not enough. It's not enough just to go to God and say, sorry, will you let me back in? Like, if you had been, and some of you have, if you have been the victim of real injustice, I mean real violence, and your perpetrator came back to you and just said, sorry, can we just move on? You would say, no, it would be unjust to move on. That is injustice to move on. And that's not being vengeful or spiteful. It is standing for what justice demands. You've been wronged and you know that something is required more than sorry. Some kind of costly payment has to be paid. And that's what the flaming sword is that guards the garden. It's the sword of eternal justice. And no one can get back into the presence of God unless they go under the sword, unless something pays. But who can survive that? You'll never get back to the garden. That's the question for us. Who can survive the flaming sword to get back into the garden? In the middle of the temple, remember, was the Holy of Holies. And that Holy of Holies had the altar that they built. They built that first. In that Holy of Holies, you could only enter into the presence of God only once a year on Yom Kippur by the high priest, and then only briefly and with a rope tied around his ankle lest he die and they need to pull him out because you couldn't go beyond the veil. 
into God's presence because of his holiness. And they carried in a blood sacrifice once a year. Why? Because they are retelling how you get into God's presence, how you enter back in to the garden, as it were, into his presence, into his sanctuary, which was symbolized by the garden and then by the tabernacle and then the temple, Holy of Holies. You get in by going under the knife. And so sacrifices were given. Why were they given? Because it was a picture of getting back into the garden through coming under the knife. And even then, it was just a symbol. It was a symbolic symbol that something has to come under the knife in order to get back into God's presence and to experience the kind of flourishing and shalom that we so long for. Nothing can get past the flaming sword without being killed. You could not get back without bloodshed. And despite the fact that no one could get back into that garden except through death, Habakkuk nevertheless says one day, The glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And one day, that temple presence that began in the Garden of Eden and out of which we were shut and then is symbolized in the temple, one day, one day, God's presence will fill the earth as waters cover the sea. How? In John 14, or John chapter 1, verse 14, when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word dwelt, as you know, is the word tabernacled. That Jesus came and he tabernacled among us. That the incarnation had to happen. Jesus had to come to earth. And this is what is so utterly distinct between Christianity and all the other world religions. God had to come down. Why? Because we had been shut out of the garden. And who was infinitely holy had to come down to earth to restore us, to bring to us. And what does it say in Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 11, verse 19? That he was cut off from the land of the living. That Jesus, when he was in uh, the temple and he was clearing the temple, as we read earlier and as you see again in Mark 11, you know, he, he turned the tables upside down. He cleared away the money changers. And at the very end in Mark chapter 15, it says after Jesus' death, what happened? The curtain was torn from top to bottom as though invisible hands rent the temple from top to bottom as to say, thou my glory is spilling out. The flaming sword has met its match in Jesus on the cross. Amen? He was cut off for us. Don't you see that's why Jesus came? Listen, we look at God and say, God is a terrible God. He's a terrible vengeance God. How could he be terrible and vengeance, full of vengeance when you see that he gave you his son to come under the flaming sword for you? That is love. Profound love that you could never have accomplished for yourself. And so what does this do in us? If God is calling us back to reprioritize worship in his presence by being for him a pleasing aroma, a living sacrifice, as it says in Romans. If we are the temple of God's people now by the presence of his Holy Spirit because of the death of Jesus for us, what ought it do to us? Well, what do we have to learn from this passage about how we then, through the power of what Christ provides for us, become the kind of people that God needs us to be in order to extend his glory throughout the world as the waters cover the sea. Well, the first thing you need, number one, 
How do we reprioritize the integrity of our worship? Number one, you need courage. You need courage. Notice in verse 3, it says, For the fear of the non-Israelite, they offered sacrifices to the Lord, and they built the altar. Friends, it takes courage to be part of God's church today. As I said, first time in 80 years, Gallup has said the minority of people actually say they regularly go to church in this country. That's shocking. I remember about uh, 12 or uh, 13 years ago, whenever Lauren and I were, we lived in Princeton, and when I was a campus minister there, I can remember driving to church and just being, like, shocked in New Jersey how few people went to church. And you know what I feel when I drive to church today in Oklahoma? It feels very similar. It's only taken 12 years. But you know what was beautiful about worship in New Jersey for our family? You knew that it cost you something to show up on a Sunday. And it was rich, and it was beautiful, and it was simple, and it wasn't always put together. Sometimes it was awkward. But it was beautiful. Why? Because we knew that the Lord had called us to be the presence of his temple, filling the earth as the waters cover the sea. And when I looked myself in the mirror and thought, Lord, how could you use me, a broken sinner who still struggles with some of the same sins I struggled with when I was five years old? And the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you. And my strength is made perfect in your weakness. It takes courage, Trinity. Students, it takes courage to come to worship, doesn't it? It's a big deal. You got up. And I just, I just want to say thank you. You got up on a Sunday, and you're beginning to develop the habits that are important for you long after you graduate from TU. Where is your RUF after TU? Look around. This is it. I mean, we're still just RUF students, young and old. We have found our home in the local church, and this is why local church life is so important for college because it develops habits in you. Because when you leave, one of the hardest transitions in your life is going to be after you graduate and you start working in the real world and you look around, where's my campus ministry? When I was at A&M, we had 2,000 students who would go into Reed Basketball Arena for a Bible study on Tuesday night. And when I left A&M <laughs> and I would go visit local churches in Dallas where I lived, I was like, oh my gosh. Where are the hands in the air? Where are all of the... Cool people. Where are the people my age? It was hard, but you, you learn the rhythm. That this is where God intends to use you, and he does so intergenerationally, and he does so in ways you would never, ever expect. It takes courage. Secondly, it takes effort. Notice the backbreaking effort it took them to put the temple foundation in place. We think about pouring a foundation today. They didn't pour the foundation. They lifted stones that were thousands of pounds, and they laid them in their place. Back-breaking effort it took to lay the foundation of the church. And dare I say, by analogy, it seems like in some ways, over 12 years, the back-breaking work some of you have done to set us up for worship. You should take great courage when you read Ezra chapter 3 of how hard it was to establish the temple foundation, because some of you have for 12 years worked to establish the foundation of a beautiful church, not of a building. You are the church. And we have worked tirelessly over these 12 years to build something beautiful for the Lord's sake, not for us. God doesn't need any one of us to continue his work. You are the church, grafted into Christ who is the head. 
And it took effort. Not only did it take courage, but it takes effort. It also took praise. Notice it says that there was music in verse 10. There were instruments. They celebrated the work of the Lord. They sang. In 1 Chronicles chapter 16, it says, it says they sang after David. And, and David's life, after they, they brought the Ark of the Covenant from Kiriath-Jerim, and remember Ezra and the other Levites were carrying the Ark, and the oxen slipped, and Ezra reached out to stop the Ark. And because he touched the Ark, he died. And it went to Obed-Edom's house for three months. And God blessed Obed-Edom because the presence of the, arter, the altar, the Ark, was there. And then David and his men took the altar, the Ark of the Covenant, from Obed-Edom, and they brought it back to Jerusalem. And when he came into Jerusalem, David danced, and Michael, his wife, sneered at David. And then David wrote a psalm, and they sang. And what is it that they sang? He, they sang, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And here they, they sing with trumpets, and they sing with cymbals. They, they sing with instruments, which is why we use instruments in our worship today. They sang. They used whatever they could to praise the Lord. So it took courage. It took effort. It was full of praise. And then there's a minor key shift. There's a key change in these last verses. And it, in verse 12, seems out of place because it says, but. Notice the contrast. The joy, but. Many of the older priests and the Levites who were 80 years old and older, they remembered, they remembered the first temple, the temple of Solomon before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. They remembered it. And when they laid the altar, when they laid the temple foundation, the stones were blackened and charred from the fires of decades ago. And they laid them out and they looked at it and they go, this wasn't like the original foundation. It wasn't like that. These are all charred. This place is a mess. And they began to be nostalgic for yesteryear. They began to say, it wasn't like it used to be. Worship is not like it used to be back in the day when the room was filled, when we were in these grand buildings that were packed to the gills with people, when more than 40 million people were back in the church. Remember yesteryear? Some of you remember yesteryear, and you're like, oh, it wasn't like it when I was a young child. When I was a young child, it was like this or that. Well, friends, let me tell you what nostalgia brings. In this passage, nostalgia, what does it produce? Nostalgia produces paralysis because after these Levites wept amidst the rejoicing, you might say that some of them had the gift of discouragement. You ever met somebody like that? You know, their spiritual gift is the gift of discouragement. They always find something wrong with wherever they are. There could be a thousand things right, but they point out what's wrong, the gift of discouragement. Some of you, some of you are blessed with that gift and we don't hear about it very much. I'm so thankful for that. In fact, I don't know if I know anybody in here who is, just to ease your conscience, gifted with that gift. But I imagine some of you might be. But notice that it's nostalgia. It's longing for the day when the way things used to be. That Nostalgia brings paralysis because from that day forward, the work on the temple stopped for 16 years. And it wasn't until Haggai came in 520 this man who was beyond his, probably 60 years old, and he prophesied from August to December 
And five months, he offers these prophecies. I mean, imagine living your whole life and all that people remember you for is the five months that God used you. Five months, he prophesied, and he says, go back to work on the temple, and they get back to work on the temple, and they finally finish it in 516 B.C., but 16 years pass before they go back to work on the temple here because of the discouragement of some of the older saints who were in the room who wept because it wasn't like the original temple foundation. In Ecclesiastes 7.10, it says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Friends, where the church is today is where the Lord in his providence has called the church to be. And he is sovereign and he is all-powerful. And guess what? He intends to use you. Yes, you, not your wife, not your husband, not your roommate, not your friend next to you. He intends to use you to extend his glory over the face of the earth as the waters cover the sea, as you demonstrate the courage that Christ also had when he was put under the knife, as you demonstrate the effort that Christ accomplished for you when he sinless lived his life as the atoning sacrifice, the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. He requires of us praise because we respond to what God has done for us. He's done so much, and we respond in gratitude for that praise. And we look with eyes, not nostalgic, back to the past, but we look with eyes of faith to the future, knowing that God is going to do something even greater in the days ahead, if you would only believe it. And so we can sentimentalize the past all we want. We can sentimentalize it, but we cannot stay there. And I wonder where you find yourself two and a half millennia later now. This passage has a lot to show us about how Jesus has been the one who was laid on the altar, who was the pleasing aroma to the Father, who was the true and living bridge to bring heaven and earth back together again. It was Jesus who went under the knife, who was cut off from the land of the living so that we might be able to enter into the garden. Stardust, as Joni Mitchell said in Woodstock. Remember that song? Some of you can be nostalgic for just a minute. We are carbon. We are golden. We are billion-year-old carbon stuck in the devil's bargain, finding a way to get back to the garden. Every religion, every yearning of your heart, every time you worship at the altar of Hestia or Aphrodite or of SEC football, God says, I've done it. And this passage teaches us the importance of gathered public worship. It takes precedent over practically everything. Thank you for being here. Keep coming. We form habits together through the ordinary little things. It teaches us about worship according to the book and what that means. And it teaches us about our need to exalt not the past, but to exalt in Christ, who is Lord and who is sovereign over the present. And he promises still to use us in the future. And God makes us the living temple by his spirit, who he has set in our hearts to now be the presence of the Lord Jesus to the world and to extend his glory across the face of the earth as the waters cover the sea so that we can lead the way in extending the beauty of the garden across 
the face of the earth until he comes again. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray.